Hey, welcome to the Behind the Screen Podcast. Andy Benoit, my friend Greg Cosell from NFL Films, hit that subscribe button. Greg, our producer Ben Allen posed a question to us right before. We're going to talk Dolphins and Cowboys here, maybe the angle we take on it. He asked a question that I think it's one of those 30,000-foot questions that's yep. a fair starting point. In theory, why don't the Dolphins throw the ball 50 yards downfield to Tyree Kill and Jalen Waddell 15, 20 times a game? What's what's stopping an offense from doing that? Let's start there and kind of talk Dolphins receivers, Cowboys corners, and get into it from that way. Well, you know, it's funny you say that because – you know, I, I used to work with someone who, when there was a positive play, would say to me, well, why don't they just run that all the time? And, you know, and I'm being honest with you, Andy, I didn't have a great answer for that, you know, because obviously, you know, teams don't do the same thing, you know, on every play, obviously. Um, my guess is defenses wouldn't allow that to happen on every play. But, well, you know, when you do talk about speed, like, you know, Hill, I assume, will be back this week. We know Hill and Waddle can run. They can probably run past most corners. Look, we saw Waddle catch a touchdown last week, simply running past Reed on the outside for the Jets. We know that Hill, if he just lines up on the outside, and particularly if a corner, even if he's not quite impressed, but he's not quite off either, that Hill can run by corners. So they do do that. Um, uh, why don't they do that 20 yeah. times a game? You know, I mean, theoretically, they're not they're not um, high percentage throws throwing the ball 30, 40 yards down the field. I mean, those are not arm strength throws, just to make it clear for a lot of people that say because Tua uh, throws th- throws those balls well, they're not arm strength throws. More Those throws are more fade type throws than really true vertical throws. So those are not arm strength throws. Those are more touch ball placement throws, which Tua is very good at. But I think you'll see them attack the Cowboys this week with vertical throws. I don't think there'll be 25 of them. Do you have a brilliant answer for this? Well, just that maybe, I mean, specifically to Miami, you know, well, first of all, I'll tell the story. The time I was in NFL films, I was brand new to watching coaches film when I was with you. And I asked you one of those times, why don't they just do that on every play? And you say, because the defense won't line up that way if they keep doing that on every play. Which they won't. Yeah, so things work against certain looks. Right, right. Two has been hit less than any QB in the NFL by a pretty good margin this year. It's under 10% of his snaps. Ball gets out in that system. The catch and run's a big part of the system. At least it was when you kind of bring some of those 49er elements to it. I know they're not built on the catch and run quite the same way, but making you defend the middle of the field, attacking you in the middle of the field, that's what Miami's about. So if they line up and start throwing these Pittsburgh Steelers spread ISO balls, because Pittsburgh did this a few, they would throw eight of these a game. And that's not the way they're built to play. Their receivers are not. So how about this, Gary? I'll put it this way. I did a study on all the 30-plus yard completions in the league one year. I, every ball that was, including the pass interference balls. The number of times that a guy just ran by someone, the way that Waddle did on DJ Reed, it was less than 3% of those plays. Even the speed guys don't do that. That you know, When they do it, it's like, oh, of course, he's faster than him. Why doesn't it happen every time? It's not a straight line run every time. There's different factors. You're not going to run by the guy every time. What I've learned from that study was speed is what what engenders the throw. That's what prompts the throw. But from there, there was always one more element that was required. Either it was a receiver that could make a contested catch, which is usually the big one. You get on top of a guy, he gets back near you, and you catch the ball with 
him, you know, draping on your shoulders, or uh, there's a route running element to it, which actually that Jalen Waddle play that we're bringing up about DJ Reed, he beat him on kind of a double move. He didn't just line up and run by him. Correct. So, Correct. So, you know, it's a more nuanced game than that. And, and corners, almost every corner is going to be slower than the receiver he's guarding because a corner's starting off backwards. He's backpedaling. So it's, it's about a technique more than anything. And then can you block it up for the offense? And you can block it if you do it once in a while. I don't know if you could block it up if you're doing it 8 to 12 times a game, though. And, you know, the number you gave, I think, is really the key number, less than 3%, because that tells you that it doesn't work that way. That, you know, it may seem like it works that way, you know, when you say, oh, well, Hill's going to be faster than any corner he's playing against. And yes, if they were going to run a race, he would be faster. But obviously, it doesn't work that way, or that number would be well higher than 3%. So as you said, it's it's a lot more nuanced than that. But, you know, it's funny, because I remember when they, they uh, signed Hill last summer, and a lot of people said to me, um, oh, man, they're just going to throw the ball vertically. And I said, well, they'll do that. But I actually think in the Mike McDaniel defense, Hill will be a much bigger factor running short and intermediate routes with run after catch because that fits what Tua is as a quarterback. And I think we've seen that. You know, you made the point that Tua has gotten hit the least of any quarterback in the NFL, and that's because of all the timing rhythm throws. I mean, when they're at their best, and there have been some games, obviously, when that has not happened, um, and a lot of people say it's the good teams. I guess we'll find out as they keep playing games and, uh, you know, get in the playoffs, ideally. Um, but um, but the point is, is his game is built on drop back, hit his back foot with sort of three-step, five-step timing drops, and the ball gets out. And it's And when that's working the way they want it to work, you don't hit the quarterback. You could have a free second-level rusher, a free hitter who's unblocked, and he's still not going to hit the quarterback on a quick five-step drop timing throw. He still won't get there in time. Yeah, and if you start putting safeties over the top, you know, when, which they see a lot in Miami because of what we're talking about, because right. of the threat there, then those – because what's what's great with with Tua, he can still throw it downfield at the at the top of those quicker throws, like you're describing. Yes. That's one thing that makes that offense unique is they're willing to do that. That's if they get no safety over the top. If there is a safety over the top, the arm strength limitations become an issue then, and we've seen that happen before. Tua is not a great. I think he's a great quarterback in certain ways. I don't. I would not consider him a great downfield passer though. Uh, he's a fade ball passer, and he's really good at that. But the kinds of downfield throws you're talking about, yes, he is not a sit in the pocket, late in the down, drive the ball down the field. That's not his game. You know, fade balls, as I said, those are not arm strain throws. Even certain post throws are not arm strain throws. They're timing throws, and and they don't require you to have a big, big arm. Um, but you know, those throws he can make extremely well, and he's accurate with those throws, places the ball really well. But he's not a quarterback that, you know, can sit in the pocket 2.5, 2.8 seconds, just drive off that back foot and drive the ball down the field. He's not that kind of quarterback. Yeah. So these Cowboy corners, how much does it bother you that – so Deron Bland's going to get first-team all-pro votes this year. Yeah. It, it's inevitable. And he's made some great plays, no question. When he struggled against Seattle, which I assume you saw that film, the Thursday night film, a few weeks I ago. I sure did. He struggled a week came... prior against the Commanders, too. 
and Seattle came out, went after him, and had a lot of success. The halftime adjustment in that game was they started traveling Stephon Gilmore with DK Metcalf whenever Correct. possible. Whoever the if it was Lockett as the only receiver on the field, whoever the biggest receiving threat was, it was Stephon Gilmore on him, and they hid Bland, and they've used Gilmore a little more traveling lately like that. They're telling you that Gilmore is their best corner when they do that. Of course. Gilmore's, gonna get, Gilmore's not going to get all pro votes, most likely. No, it's – but, you know, it's funny. You just nailed it. You know, we've talked about this. It's, I guarantee I talked to you about this years ago when we first started to get to know one another, that very often teams and coaches tell you how they feel about their players by how they deploy them, you know, because they know them better than you and I. I mean, you, you know, obviously you were with the Rams and, you know, you were in the building every day, so you, you knew about – those players because you were there and you worked with coaches you know I'm not in a building but I can watch tape and I see how a coach deploys a player or what he asks a player to do and that tells me what they think of him and they're with him every single day so you know Bland is a very beatable corner if you look at his interceptions I don't want to say every single one because I don't have them all at my fingertips but a large percentage I would bet if he has eight my guess is maybe six would come when he sits and he squats and the ball's thrown in front of him and he plays off that pass rush, which which at times can be as good as there is in the league, and he's able to jump routes. But when he has to play routes in a more normal way, and you know this, you watch the tape, when he has to play routes in a more normal way, he's a very beatable corner. Yeah. So they had a guy like this a few years ago with, with Diggs, and he'll be back healthy hopefully next year. That's why Bland is in there because Diggs is out. And and Trayvon Diggs, I think to his credit, kind of evolved past that a little bit where he was not as boom or bust the last year or two. But remember the year he had, what was it, 11 interceptions, yep. and he gave up almost an equal number of, of plays over the top. I asked a lot of coaches, including guys that were coaching Diggs at the time, and we've had this discussion, Greg, can you live with – can you live with that? You and I are, are, are we, we were friendly with Ike Taylor from the Steelers. One of my yeah, favorite yeah, 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 yeah. And by the way, he's scouting for them now. Did you know he's on their scouting staff? I saw. I did know that. And I think his son yeah. just committed, I believe, to Notre Dame, but I could be wrong. Okay, well, Ike Taylor to me was one of the best corners I ever saw. I don't know if he ever had an interception in his life. He couldn't catch the ball, but neither could the guy he was guarding. And so, right, right. You know, he was a great corner. Yeah, great corner. So the discussion then becomes, who would you, I? I would ask coaches, who would you rather have, especially defensive coaches? Who would you rather have, Diggs or or Ike Taylor? To me, it was almost a no brainer. The majority of coaches say, I want Diggs still. I want I want the playmaking corner. I I could not believe how many guys said that. Guys that know way more football than I know. And I find that really interesting. And you know, I I think that. A lot of coaches do talk about, particularly defensive coaches, about turnovers, about making plays, and obviously Diggs is that guy, whereas Ike Taylor did not make those kinds of plays. But, you know, it's a great question, and maybe, you know, and maybe it comes down to personal philosophy. We know that there's a lot of different philosophies, and there's a lot of different ways you can play in this league. And a lot of coaches see things differently because there's many ways to line up on both sides of the ball. Um, you know, to me, I personally would prefer Ike Taylor, and I think you would too, based on what you're saying. But obviously, he's not going to get six or seven or eight interceptions in any given season. No, he, no, he, and, 
Yeah, I'm with you though on that. It's, to me, your job as a corner is to stop plays first, make plays second. That's that's the job. It's a great point, and I think that's that's fair because you know Diggs. I remember the, those first couple of seasons where he gave up a lot of big plays, and he was very beatable on double moves, and you could almost count on a double move literally every game. I mean, yeah. what year was it? Was it? last year or the year before where because you i lose track um how many years has aj brown been with the eagles last year was his first year last year then okay then it was last year and i in the first meeting i'm almost sure then it was the first meeting maybe the second or third play of the game they ran a double move on Diggs with brown and he jumped it do you remember this play by any chance and he jumped it tell me more tell me more it was the second or third play of the game, Cowboys-Eagles last year, and I'm almost positive it was the first meeting because I believe Jalen Hurts threw the ball, not Gardner Minshew, who played in the second game. So it was mm-hmm. the first meeting last year, and they ran a double move with Brown on, as I said, the second or third play. They didn't have to establish anything with Diggs. They knew from his background and the way in which he played that he's going to jump routes. So, it, you know, they didn't have to, quote, unquote, establish, you know, any slant routes or any, you know, short routes because he's just going to be that aggressive. That's built into the way in which he plays corner. Yeah. Yeah. How about on the other side of the ball? Someone texted me today asking what makes Dallas so good offensively. And I didn't have a great answer for them. Someone that was a coach that has will be playing Dallas soon. So I said, you're going to know more than me. I want you to answer it. That was my way of saying, I don't, and I'm not saying they're not good. I don't know where the discussion begins with Dallas's offense, unless it's just as simple as Dak Prescott's playing at the highest level he's ever played. Offensive line looked like it's kind of returned to some of the form we saw of a few years ago, but I don't know. Have you seen a lot of Dallas film? Well, really? what I mean, I, again, these may or may not be the reasons, but I can speak to a number of things that I believe show up on tape. Although even after saying that, it could be that Dak's playing great football. You know, that, that's sometimes that's hard to separate. But I think they're more diverse formationally this year. I think C.D. Lamb has become a player that lines up both outside and in the slot. They, they move him around much more than they did a year ago. He's even used as their motion receiver at times. Um, I think that the use of Ferguson at the tight end and the way he's developed as a meaningful uh, three-level dimension has given yeah. them another element to their offense, um, which they did not truly. I mean, Dalton Schultz was a nice player, but I didn't view Dalton Schultz as a true three-level dimension. I don't know your feeling about him. I mean, he's a nice player, but no, to yeah, me, he Ferguson was, he, he's gives the guy, them more. He threw the ball. He caught the ball. He was a guy that caught the ball that you threw. That was where his production came from. But correct, correct. Yeah, but um, but Ferguson's a different a different deal. Yes, Ferguson adds another dimension to your pass game. Um, this year, they've all, they've been very, very effective and, and used more empty sets. Um, so that's something that, that, you know, empty sets, some coaches shy away from it. Some coaches love it. You know, you can talk about why empty is good. You know, what are the pitfalls of it? But they've used it a lot more this year. And Dak has thrived in empty sets this year. So, you know, more often than not, a quarterback, you know, it's harder to to do late rotations and disguise out of empty, um, you know, just because the field is so spread. Uh, yeah. So 
um, you know, that maybe that cleans up the picture for Dak more often than not pre-snap. Look, the name of the game for the quarterback, and defenses are realizing this, so this is a great way to lead into another discussion. The name of the game for your quarterback is to try to give him as much information before the snap of the ball as possible. That's one reason why now you're seeing a lot more disguise and late rotation from defenses because they're just trying to slow down that process. They're trying not to give the quarterback information before the snap of the ball or the right information before the snap of the ball. And now it's up to certain quarterbacks to be able to sort of decipher and process that movement quickly. That is one of the great traits of Brock Purdy. You know, I heard someone say this week, I think I saw it on on social media that, oh, you know, everybody's caught up in, well, he's a system quarterback. 15 guys could do what he does, which you and I both know that's not true at all. And one of the one of his best traits, which is not an easy thing to do at all is his ability to instantaneously recognize rotation at the snap of the ball and know exactly where to go with the ball. He had a play this week, and I know you probably haven't seen the tape yet, but he had a play this week against the Cardinals where they lined up in a seven-man front with a single high safety. They ended up going to cover two at the snap of the ball, okay? And because of the initial seven-man front, the 49ers actually got caught, Andy, with poor protection, and B.J. Ojolari was clean. He was a free hitter, and he wasn't coming from distance. He was right on the line. He was, you know, he was clean to Purdy, and Purdy immediately recognized the rotation to cover two because obviously the, the middle post safety then rotated, you know, uh, laterally because he's going to his half field responsibility and he immediately hit Kittle right in one of the voids and cover two and Kittle ran for 35 yards and it was third and 11 you know that is a high high level trait and it doesn't look like anything when you're just watching the game on Sunday you know it doesn't look the same as Josh Allen running around or Patrick Mahomes running around it just looks like he took the snap and made a throw to an open receiver so people don't associate that as being a special play but it is a special play. Well, and the whole Brock Purdy manager thing, that is just something that people say. And it's nothing yeah. more than that. And actually, I was, so I, I was curious. I was looking up, Greg, and there's no perfect way to do it. But I was studying, all right, I'm going to look up all the, all the throws that occur four seconds after the snap on improvised movement outside the pocket. We've got a lot of data at the 33rd team. We're able to do that kind of stuff. I want to see the average yards per attempt on those plays compared to in the pocket under four seconds. And by the way, it's what you guess. Four and a half yards when you're outside the pocket running around, making the people on Twitter and TV all excited. Six and a half yards per play when you're in the pocket playing on schedule. These are all the throws in the league. But the one that surprised me, the one team that leads the league in in efficiency and production uh, yards per attempt on those sandlot plays out of the pocket is San Francisco by a wide margin, 8.9 yards per attempt. And that's the part of Brock Purdy, and I'm not saying that's his MVP discussion because they've only done it. He doesn't do it a whole lot because he knows what he's looking at, like you're describing. Right, right, right. right. <laughs> but when he does do it, he's been very good at that, and he's very yes. impressive going off schedule. And that's one huge difference between him and Jimmy Garoppolo. And I wonder how much – I know there are coaches that don't want their quarterback playing that way but also want a quarterback that will be effective when they have to play that way. And the coach knows you're going to have to make me right a couple times every game. And I wonder if Kyle Shanahan, I'm not trying to get in his head, but is he, you know, it would seem to me you could be a lot more comfortable calling plays if in the back of your mind you knew you've got a quarterback that's pretty good off schedule if he has to ever do that. 
Yeah, uh, I would agree with that. But I think the flip side of that is when you spend 16 hours a day, as, as Kyle Shanahan does, and he's not the only coach uh, who does this, obviously, this is what coaches do. You also want your offense executed the way it is designed to be executed. And, no question. Yeah. And Brock Purdy does that at a really, really high level. Uh, and and you can say that, hey, the system allows him to do that. I always find that comment to really be meaningless because every coach coaches a system. So every coach wants the quarterback to execute what he's being taught within the confines of the system. That's the yeah. way the position is taught. So every coach wants that, and every quarterback – See, to me, saying a quarterback is a system quarterback is not a negative term. If you're executing the system at a really high level because of the nuances and details and at times the complexities of NFL defenses, then you're playing quarterback at a really high level. So I think there are parts of a system at times that a coach, if he does not trust his quarterback, and I'm talking when we say don't when I say don't trust his quarterback, I mean, if, if it hits the fan, what's going to happen to my quarterback? What does he do? If B.J. Right. Ojalari gets in there clean because we got the wrong protection because the front got us, what happens with my quarterback? I think there are coaches that take significant parts of their playbook and just cross them out because they don't want their quarterback in that situation. They want to raise the floor of the QB in those kind of scenarios. And I guess my thinking is when you have a QB who – you can trust when he does go off schedule, even if he is committed and you are committed to playing on schedule. I don't think that coach is crossing plays off of his, uh, off of his playbook. Uh, I think he's comfortable with the, having a lower floor, taking a, a risk more with his quarterback, knowing that, all right, if they do get me on this call, it, it's not a guaranteed disaster for us. And that's possible. I mean, there's no question. I think that that's possible that when you have a quarterback that, you know, can, can sort of beat beat the defense even when the defense wins tactically because that's kind of what we're saying there are going to be plays where the defense wins tactically and is able to truly pressure your quarterback and you don't want the play to be over at that point you don't want the quarterback to either get a sack or to have to throw it away or do something that ends up you know not doing anything for your offense you'd like your quarterback at that point when the defense wins tactically to still be able to potentially do something. So there's no question about that. But the other thing is, is the play I mentioned with Purdy that I, you know, broke down a little bit and people can go take a look at it. You know, in some ways that's, that is a pocket outside of structure play uh, because, you know, obviously you're not counting on a free hitter. Okay. I mean, you're just not, you know, no one calls a play with the idea that we're going to get a free first level defender at the quarterback. You know, no plays are called like that. So when there's a free first-level defender at the quarterback, even though he made the throw from the pocket, in some ways that's an imp improvised play because that's just not expected. Um, so he has to respond to it. And instead of running out of the pocket and making a play, he still was able to make a play, play from the pocket to defeat a play in which the defense won tactically. So... I told you I looked at the study of these out-of-pockets versus in-pocket plays. Yep. There's one quarterback that actually is equally as effective on both of them. Which one would you guess? I don't think it's a hard guess. Mahomes. Mahomes, yeah. 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 That's, that's more fun fact for you, Greg. I just wanted to – I just wanted to uh, – I mean, I would – you know, that's obvious, you know. You know, but, you know, it, it, it's fascinating to me and and – 
Mahomes is a great quarterback. That's not my point at all. But I always wonder, uh, you know, Andy Reid's been coaching a long time. He's going to be a first ballot Hall of Famer. Um, you know, I've spoken to defensive coaches that have played against Patrick Mahomes. And obviously they tell you he's great and he's incredibly difficult to play against. That's, but they, they all still say that, you know, there are times he just leaves the pocket when he doesn't have to. You know, now, so if you're Andy Reid, you're you're probably not saying to him, don't do that. It's just the way he plays. And because he's such a great player, you probably just live with that. And they're theoretically more often than not, he'll still do something positive. But obviously, there'll be occasions where he'll miss something. But I mean, who knows? You can probably say that about pocket quarterbacks, too. But, um, you know, those, you know, Josh Allen is another guy. Josh Allen is, is a little different than Mahomes. But Josh Allen clearly leaves the pocket prematurely at times. Um, but, you know, he's a little different animal because he's 6'5", 240 pounds. I bet those coaches, the defensive coach, a lot of them, even if the idea is leaving the pocket, like we want to break the quarterback down. A lot of those guys, though, they hate it when they like they hate the game planning part of it. They want to know where that quarterback's going to be. Of course. Yeah, it's hard to, and the main reason why it's hard to design your pass rush if you don't know where he's going to be. That's the, I remember, uh, I've told you this before, but it was after the 2014 season. So it was the year that uh, the Seattle and Denver in the Super Bowl, Manning had huge numbers. Seattle beat Kaepernick and the 49ers in the NFC Championship game. I asked a bunch of defensive coaches shortly after the season, which of those two QBs would you want to play against? And I was, startled kind of the Trayvon Diggs thing I guess really surprised the majority of them said I'd rather play against Peyton Manning than Ka and Kaepernick was at the height of his game at the time but right their, right their right, point right was their point was I I want I'm a coach same same point as your thing with Shanahan or whoever's spending 16 hours a day they want to run the offense the way it's designed the defensive coaches they're they're putting in those hours as as well they want to know what target where the target is on this stuff yeah the quarterbacks that are unpredictable, even if unpredictability doesn't work for the offense. And even if un the unpredictability doesn't lead to consistency of execution, it's still hard. I mean, I remember speaking with a really well-known defensive coordinator who's since retired, but coached in the league for years and years. And he said to me, the, the, the most difficult thing when you play quarterbacks that can move is that you almost have to have two defenses on every play, on every drop back, obviously, and he said the first two seconds and then what happens after that. And it's really, really difficult. And, you know, so whereas as, as great as Peyton Manning was, and obviously he was great. That's again, we're not we're not saying that's not the case, but you kind of knew that you could structure your defense within two point five seconds. And he was going to be where he was going to be. And therefore, the routes were going to be the routes. And, you know, you didn't really have to worry about any other variables. Yeah. By the he way, would just you out execute you. I mean, but right. but he didn't beat you in, in the way that, you know, a, a Mahomes beats you or a Josh Allen can beat you or a Lamar Jackson can beat you. So you mentioned Andy Reid, first ballot Hall of Famer. This is a little bit, it's probably more of an off-season topic, but I'm not going to remember to discuss it, you know, months from now. So there was part of me, Andy Reid is great. I love that he's won the Super Bowls and I hope he continues to win selfishly as a guy, you know, barroom football talk fan, whatever. There was a part of me that was disappointed he won because I thought, all right, if he retired now with the with his record of all those championship games, couple of Super Bowl appearances, 
unvictorious. Would he be a Hall of Fame coach? I thought he would be a great Hall of Fame debate one day. He ruined it by winning the Super Bowls. He's obviously a first ballot, no discussion. But let's say he had not, you know, Andy <laughs> Rita five years ago. Would Andy Rita five years ago been a first ballot Hall of Famer to you? For me, um, you know, I, I'm a big believer, and and this is a personal thing, um, you know, and it's and I'm not a Hall of Fame voter. I wouldn't be allowed to be anyway because I work for the league. But, but. I'm a big believer in longevity and consistency. I think that that tends to be overlooked. You know, it's one reason why I love Frank Gore, who may or, you know, may or may not get into the hall based on the argument that, oh, well, he was never the best back in the league. But, you know, it's hard to do that for 15 years. You know, it's hard to do what Andy Reid does, even if he doesn't win a Super Bowl. It's just hard to do that. And to do it over such a long period of time, I, I find that incredibly impressive. I mean, you know, so again, that could be just a personal thing with me. Um, you know, I know you're not a big baseball fan, but there are guys in the Hall of Fame in baseball who have played 18, 20 years and were never quote unquote great. But, you know, they built up lofty stats over 18, 20 years because they're really good every single year. I think that's hard to do in any sport. Yeah, no, that's. Uh, the, the the offensive line coach for the Bengals a long time, Paul Alexander. That's his. Yep. He made that argument a few years ago for Andrew Whitworth as a Hall of Famer. Is Whitworth the baseball yeah. player that played for 18 or 20 years and had the numbers steadily? I mean, Whitworth retired at age 40, right? And I don't know. I don't think he missed a lot of games in his NFL career, correct? I mean, yeah, no, obviously he, he was healthy. I mean, I'll look it up. He was healthy for almost everything, though. I mean, he obviously fortunately finished his career winning a Super Bowl, which adds to his resume. But, you know, was he ever considered the best left tackle in football? No, but he played at a high level for a really long time. You know that. I mean, yeah, that is, that's really hard to do. He missed seven games in the, in the COVID season in 2020. And then way back in 2008, which almost feels like it shouldn't count. He was 27 years old. Cincinnati is third year. He missed six games that season. Otherwise, he was pretty much a game so, here and there so available. In, for, in, in a career that spanned how many years since you have his his record up? How many years? Uh, 16 seasons. All right. So in 16 seasons, he essentially had two seasons in which he missed games. You know how hard to do that is? I mean, yeah. You know, and, and, and the argument against him is going to be just what I said. Well, he was never considered the best left tackle in football. But – you know, it's really hard to play 16 seasons at left tackle in the NFL at a, at a high level. So I had this discussion once with, uh, I had it with Terrell Davis directly, actually. We went to breakfast one time at the Super Bowl years ago. We didn't really know each other. And it was, I, I, I thought I'm going to have the Hall of Fame debate, you know, the, the Terrell Davis Hall of Fame debate with Terrell Davis. And <laughs> one thing I asked him you know, Terrell Davis was, he was pro Terrell Davis getting in the Hall of Fame, which I understood. But uh, one point I've always wondered about that is, okay, you know, Priest Holmes had a three-year stretch where he had as numbers that were as gaudy as anyone in the oh. NFL. You could argue to some degree, now Holmes did not have this playoff success that Terrell Davis had, although Davis, you know, these playoff games, it's not like you're playing 10 of them a year. You know, it's, it's a small no, sample right. size. But you could argue that, well, all right, Terrell Davis got in the Hall of Fame because he had three unbelievable seasons out of four or five. The difference between him and Holmes is Holmes had three unbelievable seasons and then four 
kind of just okay seasons. He right. still produced more in the okay season. Davis didn't produce anything in the seasons he didn't play. So it's Correct. Like, yeah. So I, I'm kind of with you on like, if you do it for a short period of time, that somehow gets viewed as more impressive because people assume, well, you would have done that for another short period. And now you've played nine years. You would have yeah, done it I all mean, nine Chris years. Holmes had three. I just, yeah, I pulled up his numbers. He had three great years, three great years in a row with Kansas city. I mean, ridiculously great years. Um, and then the next year after that, he, he was pretty good. He just wasn't great, but he was good. Um, and actually, because he missed some games that year, he was on his way to actually having a better year because that year he only played eight games. And he yeah, actually – 2004 season, eight games, 892 yards, 14 touchdowns. So half a season's worth uh, – a full season's worth of production there and half a season. And he was an yeah. excellent receiver as well. I mean, his receiving numbers were really, really good. All right. So if Terrell Davis is in the Hall of Fame, why is Priest Holmes not in the Hall of Fame? <laughs> just because what you said, because um, I don't know. I mean, that's a very, very difficult question because he even had a thousand yards in the year, two years prior to his run of great seasons with Baltimore before he got traded to uh, Kansas City. Yeah. Yeah. The, you know, the other variation is because we're going to get in the unfortunate time of year where coaches are going to get fired. We've already seen it. We're going to see some more coaches get fired in a few weeks. You know, I thought about this when Matt Nagy got fired a few years ago. So Matt Nagy went, let me see his record right here. Yeah, 2021, he went 6-11. and 11. They fired him. It was his fourth season. It was also the first time in his career as a head coach that he had had a losing record. He'd been 8-8 eight and eight the years before, but he made the playoffs one of those years. And then my, the point I'm getting at, Greg, what worked against him is he started 12-4. and four. So basically, if Matt Nagy had come out and gone seven and nine his rookie year as a head coach instead of 12 and four. Right. You know, he'd have a better chance of still being the Bears coach after 2021 because they wouldn't have regressed. But because he starts 12 and four, you know, his first losing season looks that much worse. And all of a sudden he's, he's worse off. Jack Del Rio had the same thing. He had a 12 and four record in Oakland, didn't sustain that and gets fired. You're almost better off, which is ridiculous. (laughs) Politically, you're almost better off not right, right. too early if you want to keep your job as a coach. Yeah, you know, the whole coaching thing is going to be interesting. I mean, uh, you know, as we know, coaches are going to get fired this year. I mean, a couple have already. Um, but, you know, it's – I always find it interesting to to because I'm not involved, obviously, in any of the the uh, meetings and interviews when coaches are, are you know, interview for jobs – but I, I'm always fascinated, and you may know more about this than I, the kinds of things that they ask. Because you hear that, oh, it was a 16-hour interview. You know, <laughs> what, what, what? I always think to myself, what could they be talking about for 16 hours? Yeah. No, I, I am with you. I have seen some of that. I've had some coaches that took some notes and wrote down later because I'll help coaches with their interview preparation at times. So I've seen that. But um, I, I can't, the notes I saw were not 16 hours worth of notes. I've wondered the same thing myself. I mean, and I guess you want to talk, I mean, again, I'm just talking probably, you know, out of my rear end now, cause I'm not involved with this, but obviously you probably want some kind of general philosophy of, of how you see yourself within the organization, um, how you see what the organization should look like with you in charge of the football operation. 
who your assistants are, what maybe your philosophy of offense is, philosophy of defense, how that relates to who you want to hire as assistants, you know, how you go about practicing, you know, things. I mean, I'm, I'm sure there's more, but I still think that, boy, 16 hours. And sometimes they say it goes two days, 16 hours each day. And I think to myself, wow, 32 hours of conversation. And maybe it's not all Maybe some of it is, you know, when they go to dinner or whatever, it's a different kind of conversation. It's not about the specifics of the job. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But boy, that just seems like, you know, what else can you say? Yeah. No, can you imagine the like, Colts did that last? They had a bunch of interviews. Can you imagine if you're Jim Irsay or Chris Ballard, how exhausted you'd be after the fourth or fifth 16-hour interview? I'd start to have trouble remembering what each guy said. You'd start to blur them together. Yeah. But, you know, I don't know. But – um but, you know, it's funny getting back to the whole, the, you know, the quarterback discussion anyway about, you know, playing within structure and, you know, and, and playing outside of structure. Um, you know, I think you would agree and, and maybe it'd be viewed as old school these days and maybe, you know, not changing with the game. But I still think that in this league, you have to be efficient from the pocket at time. Now, does that mean that you could argue there's a sliding scale? In other words, if you're capable of making great plays off schedule and outside of structure, that that adds an element that maybe minimizes the, 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 the needed highest level possible in the pocket. In other words, that does Josh Allen have to be as efficient as Tom Brady from the pocket? Maybe not, no, but that's still definitely think. not. Definitely not. Right. Yeah, no, right. Let, let me right. ask you this. But let me ask you Josh this, though, Allen's still going to have to make throws from the pocket and certainly not miss routine ones. Let's let's take the quick game out of the discussion for a second because that's become so prevalent. That kind of when we say in the pocket, do you believe what you just said is true? Because I, I I agree a hundred. Of course, you have to make throws within the pocket. That's what eighty percent of the throws are, even for the runaround <laughs> quarterback. Exactly, exactly. But let's say the five and seven step timing throws without the play action, straight drop right. back. Doesn't have to be You're talking about straight drop back. Straight drop back in the pocket, five and step, five step, seven. You don't step see a lot back. of that these days, though. No, but well, three step and five step out of shotgun, the timing of the play. What the timing's about. the same, correct? Yeah. Yeah. So five step timing, seven step timing in the pocket, no play action. Do you have to be able to make those plays to be a successful NFL quarterback? Is that what you're talking about when you say in the pocket? Well, I think you do, because I think you there's going to be a place for that. Um, you know, whether it's play action or straight drop back, I think you have to be able to get back in the pocket and deliver the football. Um, you know, here, here's a I'll give you Let's talk about another team that I, I I don't know if they clinched or not, but let's talk about the Detroit Lions. And you're you're familiar with Jared Goff. Jared Goff, now he is their play action pass game is among the mo most voluminous in the NFL. And the the highest percentage of play action pass with Goff under center, which in some ways has been a lost art in the NFL. Okay. I personally feel that the play action pass game under center is a really positive thing that should be in everybody's offense, but it's not, as you know, um, but they, they have the highest percentage and far and away the most snaps of what I would call conventional play action. 
Now, it's play action, yes. But at the end of the day, your quarterback's still dropping into the pocket and then has to deliver the football from the pocket. So I think, I think at some point you have to be able to do that with some meaningful sense of consistency. Um, if you can't do that, I think, I think you can only go so far. Then, you know what happens then, Andy? Then you become totally dependent on the rest of your team. So, uh, you know, a great example is, and you're familiar, Russell Wilson, when he was with Seattle, okay, they had a great run game and a great defense. A lot of those years that he was in Seattle, and yes, he won a lot of games, and we could sit here and debate the reason they won a lot of games, but there were a number of games every season in which the offense would have 150 yards of total offense. You know this. Yet in the fourth quarter, because of their defense, the game was maybe 13-10, okay? They could, yeah. they could be losing 13-10, and they'd have 150 yards of total offense, and Russell Wilson would make two plays, which he was great at, by the way, and they'd win the game 17-13. And, you know, they'd win the game, and therefore – he became a winner, you know, the term that, you know, obviously gets thrown around when a team wins because then they say the quarterback's a winner. Um, but there were four or five games like that every single season that they would win because they had a run game. The defense was dominant, you know, as we know, is the Legion of Boom for a lot of those years. And he could be inconsistent as a quarterback, but he had that, that trait and knack of making special plays in the fourth quarter, which is a total positive, obviously. But if you talk about his execution throughout games, it was certainly not the same as a Drew Brees, let's say. Yeah. You know, yeah. but so, so, you know, how do you evaluate that? Yeah. And it's a tough one because you, you don't want to say, well, if he didn't have that defense, he wouldn't be the guy. Cause you don't know that you don't want to, you don't know that you don't know that. Yeah, that's the point. All this stuff is gray, and it goes back to so many guys in the NFL. They're a product of their circumstances. They're not a product of, but they're going to be. A lot of them are a product of it. Russell Wilson right. thought he's beyond that, but you, your circumstances matter tremendously in the NFL because everybody is so good. The difference from number team number one to number right. twenty seven is not nearly what people would guess. So I mean, you it's, know, and, and complicated conversations. And the thing that's starting to bother me, and, and this is a function, of course, of social media, is this idea that, you know, a quarterback has a great game. Oh, this guy's the best quarterback in the league. Oh, he has a bad game the next week or not a great game. Oh, my God, this guy's not, you know, you know, yeah. there's 17 games. No one is great every single week. It's not possible, you know. So that's where team com comes into play. If you have a really good team, you can win games when your quarterback is not necessarily playing his best football. Now, obviously, there's quarterbacks, too, who may not be playing great through two and a half, three quarters, whatever, but yet in the fourth quarter, they they make the necessary runs, throws, whatever it is that they're demanded to do, you know, in a game. But no one is great for 17 games. Yeah. Yeah. Good deal. All right, let's get out of here. Uh, Greg, give me your prediction for uh, Cowboys-Dolphins. Who do you guarantee to win? Oh, who do I guarantee to win? Yep. Um, that's actually, a, for me, a difficult game to, to call. I'll um, ooh, I'll go Dolphins. You're going to guarantee a Dolphins win? Yeah, yeah, you know what? You know who I think is a really, and you know him well, and I think he's 
arguably the best zone corner in the league, and that's Jalen Ramsey. And I think since he's gotten to the Dolphins, their defense has played really, really well. Because I think, to me, his understanding of what he's seeing, of, of splits, route distributions, routes, I think it's really high level. Yeah, I do, too. I was actually going to ask you, and I don't think they would do it. I you know, I, I bet there's a part of him that wants to play the slot this week. I, again, I don't. Howard's supposedly going to be back. It sounds like. So, you, I you think he wants to match up to CD Lamb? I do. Yeah. Have you yeah, ever watched yeah. Ramsey when he lines up? I watched the the against Garrett Wilson. The, he he traveled with Wilson last week, which he hasn't done all year. But Howard was out, so they're going to travel Ramsey with the number one. Re, the Jets clearly have a number one receiver there. So, right. um, they actually doubled Wilson at times too, and just played one on one on Lazard, which is not a great commentary on the Jets offense right now their passing game but but have you Ramsey's reactions when you put a number one receiver out across from him and motion the guy away and Ramsey has to sit there in his zone assignment and watch his matchup run off he gets so irritated by it I would almost guarantee you that he asked to you know he's floated the idea be my guess I don't know him well enough to say this I bet he's floated the idea though of hey how about you know, I was pretty good in the slot with the Rams. What do you think, Coach? But uh, no, I, 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 I'm, I'm with you. If if he played more games this year, he's a first-team All-Pro corner this season. Oh, he's a great player. I mean, you know, I know that I don't know Jalen Ramsey. Um, you know, I, I you mean I don't know him well either. But we we had we had extensive conversations on uniforms because he actually picked the Rams uniforms each week. He's really into that. I'm a big uniform guy, and that is that is all we really know of each other personally. Yeah, I mean, my guess is he's probably not an easy guy to coach, but he's such a great player. He was. He's a, and he's a guy that you. It takes a certain type of coach. You're gonna have to be under understand that he's and he is a he is so smart and so dedicated and so talented that uh, third. We talked about hey, who who would you rather have, Diggs or Ike Taylor? I bet you 32 out of 32 coordinators would go Ramsey if you added him to that. Oh, I don't think there's any question. He's yeah. a great player. He's a great player. And just the way he plays in zone tells me that he studies the game and how smart he plays. He's a great player. Yeah. So Okay, so Greg, Dolphins guaranteed win. Ramsey, four interceptions. Good? There you go. I, I'd say five interceptions. All right, good. All right, we'll get out of here on that note. Andy Benoit, my friend, Greg Cosell, this is Behind the Screen Podcast. Hit that subscribe button. Join us next week. Happy holidays.